I invite you to turn in your Bibles once again uh, to the book of Nehemiah. To the book of Nehemiah. We are almost through our study of uh, this great book. I'm not sure how many weeks uh, we have been in our study of Nehemiah. I think that we'll be here about two more weeks, I think. And then that will lead us right up to Palm Sunday where we'll spend some time reflecting upon uh, the life and death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus in the month of April. Before we read our passage, I want us to remember where it is that we were last week as we looked at the first half of Nehemiah chapter 10. You might remember those of you who were here that it was important last week and it still is this week for us to have the stage set and for us to be in the proper context, the, the gospel grammar, so to speak, that undergirds the commitment that is made in chapter 10 by God's people. And I reiterate this because this is important because of our hearts, our hearts that I think are so quick to run to new resolves, to new stands, to new commitments, only to be discouraged when those commitments and those stands and those resolves quickly fail and go by the wayside. See, we need to keep in mind where God's people have been. And what has led them up to this point? What they have experienced. Some of you are visiting here. What they have experienced is God's people have, after a long time away from the Lord, in exile in a faraway place, far from His commands, far from His laws, far from His ways, they have now returned to discover again who they are as God's people who they are to be and who they haven't been. And as they hear God's law, they, they are humbled that they haven't obeyed like they should have obeyed. They were brought to the end of themselves to great contrition, to great sorrow for their sin. And yet, God has confirmed to them once again that they are forgiven. That forgiveness is theirs. And that's the backdrop that brings them to chapter 10, to this commitment that, as I said last week, is, is birthed from grace, it's buoyed by grace, and it's secured by grace. And so I put that before you again this morning, because it's no different for us. In fact, how much more for us who now sit on this side of the Lord Jesus and His work. Some of you may have noticed every week I put a quieting our hearts for worship quote. And these are different quotes that I find that encourage me and my heart and my walk. And this morning's quote I, I particularly loved because it talked about, if you turn there you can see it, The beginning of our order of worship says there has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It's been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. 
This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, and yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another expression, and here's the phrase I love. Mission begins with an explosion of joy. An explosion of joy. And that's what the people of God are experiencing here in Nehemiah 10. It's an explosion of joy. Knowing that they are forgiven. Knowing that they now know how to obey and they can obey. And that obeying is not a burden for them. It's not a way for them to pay back God's grace. No, obeying is for their joy. God gives His law that it might go well with you all the days of your life. And so last week, as we looked at the first half of Nehemiah 10, we saw that God's people became serious about following all of God's law and committing themselves to it once again, but specifically in the area of the marriages of their children and keeping them pure as they did not marry outside of Israel and then also keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy. And we talked a little bit about what that means for us, and I won't rehash all of that, but this week we forge into to new territory in this same vein as we look once again at Nehemiah chapter 10. And so let's go ahead and read it. Listen as I read. I'm going to read Nehemiah 9 verse 38 and then jump down to verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah 9, 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, 
shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, some of you know this, but I am a renter. I don't own my house here in Washington. One day I'd like to own a house, but for now I'm a renter. And I like being a renter. I'm content to be a renter. It's not that I don't care about the place that I live in. I care about it. It's just that when something breaks, when something goes wrong in my house, it's not my responsibility. No, I just get on the phone and I call the owner of the house and I tell them what has happened to their house. See, it's not my place. It's not my responsibility. And you know, many of you who are either renters or owners, you know that ownership changes things. Ownership does something to us. Ownership changes our perspective. God's people felt a sense of pride. God's people felt a sense of responsibility. God's people felt a sense of ownership when it came to the temple of their God. And we see it here. We see it here in Nehemiah chapter 10 with that great closing phrase. We will not neglect the house of our God. Of course, Ultimately, God's people didn't own the temple. It wasn't their house. It was God's house. It was the Lord's house. But remember, for years, God's people didn't have this. They didn't have the temple. They were far from the land of promise, living in exile, and their worship, however significant it may or may not have been, was in a rented facility so to speak. But now, oh, now, they're home. God's people are home and and the roots are beginning to, to sink in. And as the roots sink in here in Jerusalem, God's work and the needs of God's work suddenly begin to intersect more directly with their time with their finances, with their best. And so we ask ourselves this morning, how does this passage relate to us? We don't have a temple. In fact, we're not even owners of a building. Here we are in a gymnasium. Renters ourselves. Oh, but we're the church. We're the church, and the temple now consists not of a building in a faraway land. No, the temple consists of living stones. 
You and me being built on each other. Each of us, a place in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And as we come together, the Spirit of God dwells collectively with us. And so we are the church. And the church, the called out ones, we gather each week in this place or anywhere else for that matter. We gather each week on the Lord's Day. We gather here in a facility that needs some sense of advance preparation. We participate in a worship that needs some sense of gifts. We worship in a service that has a lot of behind-the-scenes preparations that have gone on, all in support of one thing, the advance of God's work. See, this is the work of the church, and Nehemiah 10, as we read it today, is about the work of God's church. This is not my church. Nate Presbyterian, as catchy as that is. This is Christ's church, the ascended Christ, ascension Presbyterian. And this is a church that you are a part of, a church that He has entrusted to you and to me together collectively until He returns. And so in view of God's mercy, what did God's people do in Nehemiah 10? They invested in God's work. So there's really just one truth this morning that I want to speak of, and I want to do so as we flesh it out in three different expressions. But kids, for those of you who are following along, here comes that one big first truth. In view of God's mercy and grace, commit yourselves to His work. Commit yourselves to His work. Let's begin talking about taxes. Ah, it's tax season. Everybody's feeling good about tax season? I just got my taxes together this past week. How many of us this time of year reflect with great joy at giving some of our money to the government for all that they have done for us. It's a wonderful time of year. How many of us resent the fact that it seems like the government takes too much from us? Verse 32 of Nehemiah chapter 10, we read, We also take upon ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. See, in view of God's mercy and grace, if we're to commit ourselves to His work, the first expression, kids, this is the A under that point, the first expression of that commitment is in the giving of our money. Oh, doctor, the giving of our money. And our visitors are thinking, I cannot believe we visited on this Sunday when he's going to talk about money. 
Now what we have in Nehemiah 10, it's inescapable. What we have is a temple tax of some sort. Everyone was required and expected to contribute to the work of the Lord. And notice that this money wasn't necessarily going to the, to the flashy stuff. This wasn't some big capital campaign for some big crystal cathedral. No, this was the ordinary stuff. I mean, verse 33 spells it out. The bread. The grain and burnt offering. See, every morning and evening, a lamb needed to be brought. Two quarts of flour needed to be brought. One quart of oil needed to be brought. One quart of wine needed to be brought as it was offered to the Lord. And all the work of the house of the Lord, this money, these gifts went to. And so the question for us is, how do we give? Just like there's a certain ring to Nate Presbyterian, maybe there's a certain ring to the cross point ministry tax. No, I don't think that would go over so well. And that's not what God's Word is calling us to this morning. But there is no doubt, there is no doubt that God's Word is challenging us in terms of our commitment to His work, and how that work, how that commitment intersects with our wallets and intersects with our bank accounts. There's no doubt that that's the case. This brings to mind the issue of the tithe. The issue of the tithe. Many of you who know the Scriptures well are familiar with this principle, a principle established by the Lord in the Old Testament. This was proportional giving that the Lord required. A tenth of everything that the Lord gave to you was then to be given back to His work. And so as we think about the Old Testament tithe, just like we thought about last week about the Old Testament Sabbath, how does the tithe apply to us now that Jesus has come? Does the tithe exist in the same way it existed then? Well, I would say just like the Sabbath, no. No, it doesn't. But does our commitment to the Lord's work resulting in the giving of our money and our possessions apply? Absolutely. Absolutely. See, Paul speaks throughout the New Testament as he encourages the churches. He encourages them to give. He commends those who are giving sacrificially to the work of of the Lord. Randy Alcorn, a modern day writer, some of you may have heard of him, he says, there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. And I absolutely agree with him. 
And if you need a biblical example, all we have to do is turn to Luke 8.19 and to the story of Zacchaeus. You see, Zacchaeus, having been transformed by the Gospel, comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus this. This is Luke 19, verse 8. Look, Lord, here and now I have given half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And what does Jesus say to him? Today salvation has come to this house. You see, his new approach to money His new view towards the things that he had was the fruit. It was the evidence of gospel transformation in his heart. Tim Keller, a name that many of you know in this room, written a couple books in recent years. He's a prominent pastor in our denomination in New York City. He wrote a book which I commend to you, if you haven't read it, entitled Counterfeit Gods. And he talks about the propensity of all our hearts to be idle fractories and to find something to worship other than the one true God. And he speaks of an experience that he he has had many of times and that many pastors have had at times. He writes this. He says, there have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and they ask about tithing, about giving away a tenth of their income. They notice that in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers should give 10%. But in the New Testament, specific quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent. And so they often ask me, you don't think that now, in the New Testament, believers are required to give 10%, do you? I shake my head no, and they give a sigh of relief. But then I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think, have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than our Old Testament believers did or less? Usually there is uncomfortable silence. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe His life and blood or did He give it all? You see, giving to the work of the Lord and committing ourselves to God's work, even to the mundane things like The purchase of bread and and wine and rent is our privilege. I'm not going to give you legalities this morning, percentages, and that kind of thing. No, this is about your heart. This is about an explosion of joy for what God has done for you and your eagerness to see and hear that message Go to others in our midst, in our community. Randy Alcorn, who I've already quoted 
I'm going to give another book recommendation. Wrote a little book called The, the Treasure Principle. It's a great little helpful book to gain perspective on our money. And it's playing off of Jesus' words to not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to store them in heaven. And the principle that he expounds in this book is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And he has six principles or six keys that he goes through. Let me just give them to you real quick because they're good and I know some of you won't read the book. Number one, God owns everything. I'm His money manager. We're not owners. We're stewards. And that goes not just to our money, that goes to our children even. They're the Lord's. Number two, my heart always goes where I put my money. And that just goes back to the idea of of ownership. Do you have a share in what's going on? Number three, heaven, not earth, is my home. Number four, I should live not for the dot, the dot being my present life, but for the line, for eternity. Number five, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Number six, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living. but to raise my standard of giving. It's a great little book for us to think biblically about money and about committing ourselves to the Lord's work in our giving in view of God's mercy and grace. That's the first expression that we find in Nehemiah chapter 10. But there's another. The second expression that we see God's people working out here, is they did whatever needed to be done. Kids, this is letter B. They did whatever needed to be done. You see, the little behind-the-scenes functions that need to get done are just as important as the upfront activity that takes place. And in our passage and throughout the Old Testament, we see that God had clearly instructed what the specifics were to be when God's people gathered for worship. Namely, they were to offer sacrifices. They were to offer animals, the firstborn of their flocks. All the things that that are spoken of later in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 10. But here's the thing. In order for that to happen, that very upfront, very visible spectacle, someone has to get the wood. They need to make sure that the wood is well seasoned in order that it would burn well. They need to make sure that it's cut appropriately for the altar. It's the kind of task that everyone assumes someone else is doing. And that is if they're even thinking about the task at all. And yet we have it mentioned here in our passage that they cast lots for the collection of wood. Of course, as we think about our worship, as we think about our life together, it's analogous of a lot of different things. Let's just take the Lord's table, for instance. 
At some point, Jeff and Renee Jesse need to think in the week, we've got to get bread for the Lord's table. Is there juice? Is there wine in the refrigerator at church? If not, we've got to go to the supermarket. Get the bread. Get the juice. Get the wine. We've got to show up early. We've got to pour the juice. We've got to pour the wine in the little cups. It's a task that doesn't require particular giftedness, but it's a task that is so necessary to what we hold sacred, to what we hold dear in our worship. It's kind of like bringing the wood. People recognize what needed to be done, and they did it. And of course, I know that many of you, not just Jeff and Renee, are involved in all kinds of things like that. And there is a place for giftedness. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you singing up here with Joe if you can't sing. Really, I don't. But sometimes I think we can hide behind that word giftedness. We can opt out of something saying, well, I'm not gifted or called to do that sort of thing. And I just want us to be careful. I want you to use your gifts. I want you to find your sweet spot. As Paul writes to the book, as Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. Because we're many members working together for the, for the body of Christ, for the work of Christ. But I also want us to be humble. To be servants. To take the mind of Christ, willing to empty ourselves that we might serve others. You see, what we find in Nehemiah 10 so easily flies in the face of much of our consumer mentality that has us picking and choosing what our needs are and how we can have them met or how we can find our niche. Do I think that this is a particular problem here at Ascension? No. I don't. In fact, I think our church is wonderfully gifted. We're a small church, and yet many of us are serving in so many different areas, both up front and, and behind the scenes. And I want to encourage you. I don't want you to feel beat up this morning. This church has done an amazing job of, of pulling together, but I don't want us to stop thinking about what needs to be done. Lest our work and, and our work for Christ be neglected. It's the message of Nehemiah 10. It's just the next passage we were in in God's providence. And so I challenge you this morning to ask this question, can I do something or can I do something else that needs to be done for His work? It may, not be your, it may not be right in your wheelhouse. It may not be in your sweet spot. It may not be forever. But does it need to be done? Can I do it? Maybe all of you are maxed out, tapped out. That could be the case. But I know... Some of you would love to do more, to find more opportunities to serve. If you have God's mercy and grace, commit yourself to His work. 
Well, one last area for us to think about real briefly. As God's people commit themselves to His work, not only by the giving of their money, not only by what, doing what needed to be done, but they gave of their best. They gave of their best. Verses 35-37 through 37 hone in on this. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground. The first fruits of our fruit. The firstborn of our sons and cattle. The first of our dough. Of course, this ties in with the principle of tithe that we spoke about briefly. It's a requirement of God's law to give of the first, but the concept of first fruits in general, I think, is important for us to think about. And it ripples back through everything that I've already spoken of. To say it very simply, my kids hate leftovers, and so does God. God wants your first. He wants that heart to be so filled with joy and gratitude that your first is what you're giving to Him. You see, He's not interested in you investing your money in His work if you've got a surplus that you don't know what to do with. No, He's interested in your heart acknowledging that all is His. And looking in faith, walking in faith to His will, to His faithfulness, to His provision to fill your needs. He's not interested in you investing your time and your gifts in His work if you've got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning or there's nothing on TV on a Tuesday night. No, He's interested in your schedule being framed around the things that He is passionate about. His people. His bride. The lost. Your neighbor. Your own holiness and growth in grace. Our best. The first fruits. Giving before giving elsewhere. Serving before serving elsewhere. Believe me, I know that it is not easy to prioritize these things. And I have intentionally prayed for you this week as you heard this message that the Lord would give you wisdom to know how to prioritize. To know what to take on, if to take on anything. You know, I began with the concept of ownership, with taking pride in the ownership that you have, that God's people had in God's work. Of course, you can do that only because God has taken pride and ownership in you. As Paul said to the Corinthian church, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And then to the church in Rome, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship. May God give us grace to know how we might worship Him 
as we commit ourselves to His work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the truth that is contained here. Truth that is challenging, that is convicting, and yet truth that is for our joy and for our good. Holy Spirit, as your word has been spoken, I pray that you would now take it and apply it in the hearts and minds of your people as you see fit, as you continue to prepare your bride for that great day of your return, as you continue to call the nations to yourself and spread the fame and glory of your name. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.